welcome to the Proper Mental Podcast. Normalising open and honest conversations about mental health by having open and honest conversations about mental health. another episode of the proper mental podcast this is episode 44 and my guest this week is dr mike banner otherwise known as dr mike the second and dr mike is he's an nhs gp he's a gp trainer he's a speaker a writer he's a podcaster he's an educator and obviously being a gp mike's very passionate about the overall picture of health and a huge part of being healthy involves being mentally healthy. And mental health is something that Mike is very well known for talking about and writing about and speaking about. And that's kind of, I suppose, why I really wanted him to come on the podcast. Was to get some of, get a different perspective, get a doctor's perspective. It's always handy when I have a guest who's got a qualification and experience, you know, all the knowledge and the know-how. It just means... I can drill down into things a little bit deeper and know that I'm safe. So I know that I'm not saying anything that could potentially be harmful or triggering or any sort of misinformation. I tend to keep it not vague, but I tend to not be too committed to a certain language unless I've got someone there who, uh, you know, who can guide me through it. So it was brilliant having yet another doctor on the podcast to chat about these things. So I know about Mike's work, uh, I suppose, through the fitness industry. Um, he's very well known in the fitness world. And I see him as, I suppose, and I don't know if he'd agree with this, but I kind of see Mike as one of the voices of reason in the fitness world. And although the fitness industry is getting better, at times it can seem a little bit like the Wild West. It's not particularly well regulated and it's very easy for people unintentionally and sometimes intentionally to kind of stray into other areas of health and tie it into fitness and talk about things in very blanket terms or to try and you know sell things in the name of health that have got very little to do with actually being healthy and Mike is really good at kind of talking about this stuff he's really good at breaking things down busting a few myths and one thing that I really love that Mike's great at is looking at things from different perspectives. You know, so he'll take some of these sayings and, and look at it from other points of view and then explain why it's important that we do that and how the message can change depending on who's saying it and who's receiving it. And that's something he does quite a bit of on this episode. I'm one of those people that quite like, uh, you know, having things explained to me differently and I like people to point things out if I'm looking at it from the wrong direction or only looking at things in one way, uh, I think it's really useful. And I think in the mental health conversation, that's how we make change with conversation. You know, that's how we break down stigma. That's how we create this truly kind world that everyone's talking about, is to see more things from more points of view and create a space for all those different points of view. Um, so that's really cool. We chat about the difference between mental health and mental illness. And that was fascinating to hear Mike's take on that. 
it's really, really interesting. And the lines are so blurred and the words we use in this conversation can be so vague that it can really affect the type of help that people get. It can really affect how people ask for help. And it can really affect how people are diagnosed and what help is prescribed and by who <laughs> is, you know, how we talk about mental health and how we get mental health and mental illness confused. And as part of that conversation, we look at, Mike and I, we talk about the, the type of words we use to describe different things and how that affects the conversation as well. And I think this is really important stuff. I think not saying that Mike and I are clearing anything up and being definitive because it's just nothing's as simple as that. But I just think thinking about the words that we use when it comes to mental health and mental illness can make a really, really big difference to the overall conversation. We're always very much encouraging people to talk. We're all encouraged to talk. But it can be hard to talk if we don't know the right words. It can be hard to talk if we don't understand what we're talking about. Because from a societal point of view, we're using words in the wrong context and using them in the wrong way. And that's, yeah, it's just fascinating to kind of get into that. And it really got me thinking. And I've still been thinking about it since the chat, to be honest. We talk about the fitness industry. We talk about Mike's journey into fitness. We talk about fitness becoming a crutch for people. We saw that during the pandemic. You know, a lot of people realised how dependent they were on the gyms when we didn't have the gyms anymore. And we also kind of realised how easy it is for people in the fitness world to kind of... I suppose stray into the mental health conversation and you know whether that's a healthy thing or not you know a personal training qualification isn't a counseling qualification but as a PT you do get to understand a lot about people so that's really interesting as well and Mike's just a lovely bloke and it's a lovely chat and I got a lot from it and uh, yeah I hope you do too you can follow Mike on Instagram at Dr Mike the second and his podcast that he co-hosts is called Fitness Unfiltered and all the links to all the other things he does to his emails to his stuff with Gymshark all of that is in his bio and his Instagram uh, you can grab me on Instagram as well Proper Mental Podcast or email me via the website www.propermentalpodcast.com if you'd like to support the podcast financially go to buymeacoffee.com slash propermental or click the link in this episode notes um, and you can just buy me a virtual coffee and it's only two or three quids or whatever and it goes into an account that just keeps this podcast rolling. It goes towards hosting and it goes towards keeping the website up and all those sorts of things. While you're doing me all these lovely favours, give this episode a review or any of the episodes a review. Five stars would be great and if you could take two minutes to do that, that would be wicked. It's reviews that gets this out there. It gets it in more people's ears. It gets it higher up the charts. Um, it really, really is important. And it only takes a couple of minutes to do. And I'd be really appreciated if you did. That's everything you need to know. I'm finally going to stop talking. This is Proper Mental, episode 44. My guest this week is Dr. Mike the Second. Thank you very much for listening. Enjoy. And then I was like, oh, I hope I wasn't like picking my nose. I just hadn't really thought it through. So I thought, you know, I don't want to be a noob about it. 
if it's yeah. on video. Oh, <laughs> oh, amazing. So yeah, I'll just do a very, very little intro and we'll jump straight in if that's okay. Cool. 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 So here we are with another episode of the Proper Mental Podcast. And my guest this week is Dr. Mike Banner. How are you, mate? Very well, thank you, sir. How are you? I'm really well. I'm really, really well. Thank you for coming on, mate. I really, really appreciate your time, Mike. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I kind of feel um I've been I follow you on Instagram and I kind of feel like your story over the last couple of weeks has essentially been you hanging out with my previous guest list. Um, there seems to have been, seems to have been a, a lot of them. I've seen you with Poonan, I'm up in Scotland and Emilia and Lucy Lord and everyone at IFS pretty much. Yeah, been on it's a very mental. small world. I will give you that much. And it's, it, it, I feel very much a bit like over the last few weeks, every single thing that was cancelled over COVID or postponed over COVID has happened within the space of about three weeks. And I have to like, I have to admit, it's been totally overwhelming for me, like being in all of these different events in different places. And some people like conduct their entire careers living like that, like, you know, being on tours and all of that sort of stuff. And I I found it like just to have a bit of a glimpse into that lifestyle for just a couple of weeks of having several different events, like over, over the course of a short space of time. I don't know how people do it, to be honest. Yeah, it must be a mad old life, isn't it? When people, some people do it all over the world as well, don't yeah. they? Jumping on and off planes and uh, yeah, yeah. Because at least I was like, I mean, I remember there was this one moment that I had in Edinburgh where I, I, I think I was a bit, a bit close to to breaking, and I thought, do you know what I really want to do? I really want to go into work on Monday morning and see my patients and sort out my blood results and read letters from the hospital and just have it all be about normal stuff again just for five minutes and it didn't last very long um but it, you know it, it's funny how I think you sort of you crave normality sometimes when you don't have it and then when you have normality you're like oh wouldn't it be cool to do all of this stuff and then you do it and you're like oh it's fun to be in your comfort zone from time to time I think this is the thing that you forget is a lot of these things you're you kind of um <clears throat> So for anyone who's listening doesn't know what we're talking about, um, I, I spoke at a few events in, in succession. Well, actually not a few, like two or three, um, but they also coincided with other people doing events that I wanted to go and watch as well. So I was, I find public speaking like quite terrifying in, in many ways um, and have tried to get a bit better at it, mainly because I, I have had a few opportunities to do it and I don't really want to not do stuff because I'm scared of it apart from spiders I don't really want to do anything to do with them um but what was the point I was even making I was just saying yes yeah, so we had IFS and a few different events that I was speaking at so I spent quite a significant amount of my time being quite like anxious and terrified about what was happening um and then enjoying it in retrospect like once the work bit was done and going wow that was so much fun so, yeah, yeah. So I, I suppose it's it's good to like come out your comfort zone, but you're supposed to like come out and then go back in and then come out. Yeah. And go, you're not supposed to like come out and live out for like three yeah. months. And then I stayed back. out for a good few weeks um, and it was it was it was I don't. And this is the other thing is I don't want to say it was tough. It wasn't tough. It was wonderful. And it was it's something that I want. I am so grateful for because it's something I've been waiting for for a long time. Like when when the pandemic kicked off you know, things, all of these things were starting to happen and I was getting to be able to do all of these things. And then suddenly it all just stopped for 18 months. 
So it's sort of been like waiting for them to happen. So the last thing I want to do is sound ungrateful for them happening, but I think it just, it's sometimes you have to recognize that you can't be out of your comfort zone all the time. You have to, you have to recognize that you, that there, there is a limit and it's good to have a break as well. Yeah, that's it. And it's nice to, when you come back to that normality and it's comfort and it's nice to sort of almost acknowledge how comforting the normal bits of your life are like that's really nice as well because we take that for granted sometimes don't we exactly and to appreciate like I I feel immensely privileged to do the job that I do um and I'm very lucky to be able to do it but sometimes it can be an incredibly stressful job and there are lots of bits about it that probably are you know I, I would quite happily change um but it's quite good to be away from it and realize that you miss it. I think that's mm. quite reassuring as well, because you might have moments when you go, you know, am I doing the right thing? Should I be doing less of it? Should I be doing more of it? Um, so it's, it's quite good. It, it, like I, A phrase that I really love is you can't read the label from inside the jar. Um, and I think that that's quite a good way of thinking about stuff. You know, when you've got a lot of things on and you're not quite sure what to do and what not to do and how to change things. Um, I think sometimes it's the acceptance that you need to step out of situations in order to look at them a bit more objectively. Yeah, that's lovely. That that's a that's a nice one. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so you you talked um, talked a little bit about your work there, Mike. How do you describe what you do? Because you do a, a few different things, don't you, in a few different spaces? Yeah, so I'm a GP full time. So first and foremost, um, I'm a GP in an NHS GP practice, and I work there full time. Um, but I also work as a GP educator is I think the official current title of, of what that means. So I, I train GP trainees, but also um, I help to run the, the actual training scheme for all of the trainees locally. Um, so a few different bits involving education. Um, and then that's where all of the other stuff, I suppose, has, has fallen into place as well, in that I quite like talking about things that I am interested in I hesitate to say things that I know about because no one really ever knows about anything but things that I'm interested in and that I like learning about I then like telling other people what I've learned um so that sort of led to me doing a few bits here and there on sort of you know bloggy stuff instagrammy stuff weekly email type stuff um oh, I hate talking about this because it makes me feel a bit self promoting and I don't like that. But <laughs> oh, well, we'll skip quite... over it. We'll skip over it quick, quite quick. Um, but you are quite known for your ties to the fitness industry as well. And some of those talks you mentioned, that's what they're in involvement with. So how did that come to be that you kind of, um, you know, got your, your foot into that door, so to speak? Well, essentially, I, um, I grew up as far away from the fitness industry as you could possibly imagine. Um, and it was always sort of something I had this sort of fleeting fascination with. I always wanted to, to you know, get fit slash get in shape or whatever people want to say. Um, and I was very much the, the opposite of that lifestyle. Um, and at one point in my life, I decided that I needed to make some significant changes to my lifestyle and become closer to that. And I did. And in so doing, realised how little that we know in healthcare about health and fitness and nutrition. We, we know about treating disease and all of that sort of stuff, but we don't really know about, about being healthy. And this got me fascinated. It got me wanting to learn a bit more about nutrition. And I learned a bit more about nutrition and then started wanting to learn more a bit about kind of the mindset and behaviour change aspect about it, which 
then ties in with stuff like mental health as well. Um, and I guess like I, a lot of it is that I've got friends or I've made friends in the fitness industry through involving myself in doing those things. Um, and then they've wanted me to, or made me do things that have scared me, like getting up on a stage and talking about something that I might have had some personal experience with. So it, I guess it's been, I mean, it's, it, it comes back to what we were saying earlier about just being a bit of a small world. And, and when you know people and you talk about stuff that you're passionate about, sometimes they'll hear what you say and go, I like that. Come and tell my friends about it, please. And it's, it's really, I guess, just part and parcel of everyone sharing each other's ideas. So the main thing that we started doing, I actually met um, Dan Osman at a, um, a nutrition mentorship course weekend that I went on. Um, and we stayed friends and well, we still, like, it sounds like past tense. We stayed friends. We have still stayed friends. And uh, at some point he decided that he wanted to do a podcast and invited me to co-host it with him. And then we ended up inviting Emma Story Gordon to co-host it with us. So that became the podcast Fitness Unfiltered, um, which I think we've done about 86 episodes of and a big online live conference during the pandemic as well, which was amazing. Um, and so it's sort of that in terms of networking and meeting people in the fitness industry and getting to chat to people about what they're passionate about has really been, I guess, probably one of the key things um, involved in that as well. So just lots of, I think that I just talk too much is the ultimate conclusion. And then sometimes people listen. Yeah, someone think, well, Mike's going to talk anyway. We might as well harness that and throw him on stage, right? Potentially. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I <laughs> yeah. like to think anyway. <laughs> but it's really nice with like fitness stuff as well to have. I think sometimes people can forget um, that it's supposed to be like health and fitness, you know? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of focus on the fitness bit. Um, I kind of work in the rehab space, Mike, and I work with a lot of people who um, like massively overtrain sometimes or under recover as i prefer to say it and sometimes i do remind my clients i say look you, you can be really really fit and not be that healthy at all but you can't be healthy without being a little bit fit so you know let's let's look at that balance so i think it's really useful to have your you know have your voice to kind of bridge that bridge that gap a little bit thank you hmm. There you go. So we're going to talk about mental health today of course we are and um one thing i like to do when i've got someone on who's got qualifications and experience and a bit of knowledge and a bit of know-how that's really good for me because I can kind of ask you to guide me a little bit through things that normally I wouldn't talk about because it's not really my place to talk about um hopefully it comes across on the podcast that I see mental health people's mental health is very very precious and I understand how fragile it can be and I'm very careful about how I word things and how I say so when I've got a guest who can who can help me um then yeah, I like to kind of use that experience a little bit. And something me and you very briefly talked about when we were planning this episode is maybe having a chat about, about the, some of the language we use around mental health. Um, and to start off with maybe the difference between mental health and mental illness. Yeah, so, so <clears throat> I'm a big believer that words are important. And I think that, you know, something that is really, really obvious if you start to think about it is how often we talk about mental health in a negative manner. And it just pervades every single subject that we do. And it's not just, it's not just negatively, but you know, how many times 
do people describe an event using mental health terminology if you actually boil it down like how many times have you heard somebody describe something as insane or nuts or describe somebody as bonkers or a lunatic or oh this is crazy um there are so many things that come from from like that come from mental health terminology that people don't even think about and so every day in normal conversation we are constantly saying negative things about mental health without even realizing it and i think that that is something that whether we like it or not is going to have an impact on on stigma and i'm not sort of saying you know i'm not saying we should ban the use of certain words or anything like that but i think if we actually start being a bit mindful about the type of words that we use to describe things then we actually start thinking about it and thinking why do we you know is it okay to say that that's insane is it you know the connotations that that has and the, the treatment that people used to have when people were considered to be insane or you know if somebody isn't uh, a very nice person they're called a psycho you know it, there, there are so many things that that we do that that are just accepted um <clears throat> and i'm not saying that they should be unacceptable i think that it just has changed the meanings of those words and that's absolutely fine words change terminology changes and that's fine too but I just think that it's part and parcel of the history of the stigma around mental health that those words are traditionally used to describe negative things. And I just think it's an interesting concept to, to think about and sometimes kind of checking ourselves when we're, when we're doing that sort of stuff. But even when it comes to things like suicide, for example, the stigmatizing language around suicide and it being described as as committing a crime, you know, it it has a it has a direct impact on people and people's mental health people are less likely to report deaths as suicide because they are ashamed of it so family members will be more likely to hide it which means it will then seem like less of a problem to people in public health or to people in politics in terms of allocating resources to fight against it because people aren't speaking up about it as much um and just the shame that that involves you know if people are feeling suicidal they're then ashamed to talk about it so they're then ashamed to seek help so you know, although it seems a bit insignificant and it seems like nitpicking, actually, if you think about it, it does also have the, the possibility to, to cause genuine harm. And so I think it is something that is, that is important for us to start thinking about. But it's also something that we've never really been asked to think about before because it's just generally been accepted that mental health is stigmatised, that you don't talk about it. Mm. And I think that what we've done a really good job of, not you know, we as society have done quite a good job of is we have reduced the stigma around talking about mental health we've increased the importance about talking about well-being about understanding that we all have the capabilities of supporting our own mental health etc 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 what we don't seem to have done quite so adequately is talk about mental illness and break down the stigma surrounding mental illness and I think that that's a much bigger obstacle because you know it's not it's not unpalatable or unsavory for people to talk about mindfulness and meditation and self-care and all of those sorts of things because they're just positive things but I think that as a society people can find it unpalatable or unsavory to talk about mental illness to talk about actual diagnoses to be honest and open about those sorts of things um 
And one of the things that I find interesting from that point of view is that you will still have people who might come to see their doctor and who might say, I think this might be wrong or I might be feeling this way, but I don't want to go on antidepressants. I don't want to have counselling because I think that in some ways it's still felt to be an admission of guilt or of a flaw or something to be ashamed of, which is a real shame, obviously, because people are essentially denying themselves from getting better and saying, I would rather suffer from this mental illness than do something about it, thereby admitting that it exists or that I need help with it. And that doesn't, you know, there's no, there's no logical thought pattern there. That's, that's an emotional response to how they perceive the issue being perceived by society, which is, you know, like, and it's obviously part of the job of the GP to try and explore that with them and, and, and discuss it. And I'm not for a second saying that everybody with depression needs to be on antidepressants. That's, that's not the point, but the idea of being, um, closed up to, to, to a particular treatment, not because of they're concerned about the physical side effects of it, or they're concerned about taking the medication or anything like that, but because they're concerned about what it means, I think is, is, um, I guess a bit, a bit problematic, not problematic in that sort of sense, but problematic in the sense of what it represents in terms of the thought process that, that is around in society. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And the, like the idea that someone who is in a really bad way can't get the help that they need purely based on on that it's quite sad when you think about it you know like sad as in it's quite upsetting isn't it yeah and i think a lot of as well in that area a lot of the words um that we use what would be used as like a for want of a better expression like diagnosive words or the names that we give to certain conditions we use them day to day really out of context so we'd say you know you might say like oh i'm really depressed and you say oh what's the matter and you say oh my football team lost last night and I stubbed my toe this morning and obviously that's not what depression is and I think that plays a part as well doesn't it it almost takes something away from the the actual diagnosis itself when we just freely toss around these words in the wrong context 100% and I mean this is the thing is that anxiety is an emotion and it's also a medical condition um, but it happens in other ways as well. Like how many times have you heard OCD being used as an adjective? Oh, uh, it's amazing. one of my biggest pet peeves. And I know, again, I know people don't mean it in that way and they don't mean it to be, you know, insulting or belittling. But at the end of the day, like OCD is not an adjective. OCD is not an adjective that describes somebody who, who likes things to be clean. OCD is a debilitating illness and it, it has again it has two sides to the story because the problem with that is that there are a lot of people walking around self-diagnosing thinking that they have a medical condition because they like things to be clean or they are particular about things and actually sometimes you know by doing that it's not just belittling the diagnosis but it's it's over pathologizing normal behavior and normal emotions so on one end of the spectrum you've got people with depression who are not wanting to take treatment because they're not wanting to admit it and on the other end of the spectrum you've got people who are having normal human emotional reactions to situations and who are thinking that it means that they are suffering from a mental illness and that's also sad as well and, and I think that's that's where we're sort of not missing the boat a bit, but I think when it comes to mental health 
related education and discussion. We're, we're putting a lot of information out there, but I don't know if we're necessarily putting enough emphasis on the fact that just because you feel these emotions, it doesn't mean you have a diagnosis. And it's the same with a lot of things. It's the same with, you know, we say, oh, if you've got a mole that's changed, you've got to go and see your doctor. But it's difficult, not, it's difficult to get through to people that doesn't mean that they've got skin cancer. It just means that they need somebody with the skills to decide whether that might or might not be the case to examine and take a look at the, the problem. Um, and I think that that's, that's what is, is difficult because, you know, public health, it's, it's a tough thing to talk about with, with universal messaging because there are some people that need to re, be really pushed to, to seek help. And there are some people who need to potentially seek less help um, because they're, they're becoming overly anxious about conditions that they, that they don't have. Yeah. And it's, it's tough to strike that balance, I think. Yeah, definitely. And I suppose the words that we use um, just muddy the waters even more, don't they? And I often think about mental health is that we are kind of forced to talk because of the maybe the lack of general knowledge throughout everyone, the lack of education around it, the lack of conversation around it. Um, we're forced to talk in these really, really like broad strokes. So to use a physical health analogy, you don't need a degree in anatomy and physiology to have a conversation with a GP or a personal trainer and explain what's what you need to get on a particular path, you know? So you would, you might say, um, you know, over lockdown, I haven't been very active. I've gone up a size in my trousers. And when I went back to the office, I walked upstairs and I found it a little challenging I'd like to do something about it. And that's all you need to say. And a personal trainer can sort of advise you on the steps to take to get in better shape. But if I came to see you and said, Dr. Mike, I'm struggling with my mental health, that could mean anything from I'm a bit stressed at the moment and I'm experiencing low moods all the way through to I need urgent, you know, I need someone to step in urgently because I'm a risk and that could mean anything in between, isn't it? It's just, we tend to use mental health as this like sweeping thing that covers all these different things at once. And that's quite difficult to kind of, yeah. you know, pinpoint within that, that spectrum almost. Absolutely. But, but that, and that's why it's important to, 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 to be guided from a professional perspective with regards to symptoms that people might be experiencing. And I think that that's what makes it, that's what makes stuff like social media a bit complex and a bit, a bit challenging because a lot of people talk about mental health like you say like it's one thing and it isn't one thing and it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people um and it requires a lot of different inputs at a lot of different stages so you know you could be forgiven from thinking that you know as, as long as you do your daily morning routine and and do your self-care and and do meditation and mindfulness that you'll never struggle with your mental health and it's obviously not necessarily the case um but you know it, it, yeah it's just it's a tough thing to 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 get right I think I think yeah. we're moving in the right direction that's sort of how it seems to me at least more people seem to be more open to moving in the right direction at least which is a good start I think 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. And the, the conversation is becoming a bit more, a bit more normalized and a bit more like it's out there, isn't it? And it's like anything when it when things first start to get bigger and more explored, then it's always like a little bit takes a little while for things to find more effective pathways and stuff. At first, it's just sure. this big conversation and everyone's talking and, yeah. then, you know, we're all raising awareness and now we're all aware. So now what? Right. So what's yeah. next? Uh, next step. Yeah. And another thing I wanted to touch on with you, Mike, as well, is kind of um, mental health and its connection to the fitness industry, because I think sometimes that can be um, like we know that to maintain good mental health or good mental well-being, then exercise is a part of that. But then sometimes I see a lot on Instagram, there's like a, you know, people are almost prescribing it as like a very general thing you know like oh you have to exercise if you're struggling like if you've got depression that sort it out get to the gym you know there is that kind of thing around it and i think that's such a gray a gray area but is that something you notice that there's maybe and i don't think people are necessarily i like to believe that everyone is inherently you know good and i think sometimes people are almost a bit um no one's maybe doing it on purpose i hope and trying to sell certain plans for mental health but it is still seem to be growing oh of it? course they are and that's the problem i mean look, there's a few problems here basically everyone loves a quick fix and everybody loves an easy answer so it would be lovely to think that doing exercise will just sort out everyone's mental health and it's totally normal for people that have not struggled with their mental health who have found exercise to be beneficial to maybe oversell those benefits but we see that with absolutely everything if somebody has you know um done an exercise that gave them bigger arms then they're going to promote that as the the exercise for for big arms i did the paleo diet and lost weight fast and i was like oh my god guys i found the secret of weight loss it's the paleo diet and i was completely wrong but you know as human beings i think we just love to correlate things with their outcomes and and assume that that what we've done has caused the outcome that we've seen i think it's just you know it's a mixture of human nature and a few other things i think there are a few people that are that that recognize that mental health is a buzzword at the moment and are probably exploiting it for their own financial gain I think that those people are few and far between, to be fair. And I, I think that the majority of people are 100% doing their best. Um, but I think that, again, you know, it, it's not a one size fits all approach. And I think that the other side of things is that a lot of people, a lot of the, the claims that people make about things that, that are so great for their mental health some people are struggling with their mental health a lot more than they realize. And actually some of the people who are saying that they feel great because they did X, Y, or Z don't feel great at all. Um, and I think that there's a lot of, um, there is a lot of mental health struggle in the fitness industry. And I think that's why a lot of people feel so passionate about it, because I think a lot of people, particularly ones who have been in the fitness industry for a little while, will have experienced issues with, let's say, body image, relationship with food, relationship with exercise, relationship with their own self-image and self-love slash self-hate. Um, and so to a degree, they will be sharing those, those journeys, I suppose, with others as well. And I think that that can be really helpful and effective I think that sometimes it, it can also be a little bit dangerous. And 
again, like you said, I don't think through the intentions of people, I think that people are then trying to help. But I think a typical example of this that we, that we see a lot in the fitness industry is people who quote unquote used to suffer from eating disorders, then, you know, trying to coach people out of their eating disorders. And I think that that's, you know, there, there are lots of areas of, of, of mental health and mental illness that are so complex and that there is such a high possibility of causing harm that might be invisible to the people that are doing it, that they can very easily think that they are doing a really incredible, wonderful, altruistic thing when actually they could be causing more harm than they realise or at least contributing to more harm than they realise. And it's something I've struggled with a lot recently. I've had a lot of conversations with, you mentioned Amelia before. Um, as you can imagine, I've had a lot of conversations with this about Amelia because it's some, with Amelia because it's something that she feels quite strongly about. And one of the things that that we've that we sort of discussed and, and came up against is that there's this idea that that certain mental health services and services that are available with professionals are oversubscribed difficult to get into um, or might involve certain things that people don't think are helpful etc or might have certain criteria so there's then this idea that well surely me helping this person is better than them not getting any help at all and I suppose in some cases perhaps that may be true and that, that those people might be helped but I think if you can't know that you are reliably going to help somebody and that you are reliably not going to cause them harm then it becomes a little bit of a sticky, muddy situation. Um, but, you know, what's the solution to it? It's really tough, isn't it? Because actually you want to help people, don't you? And something that I find really interesting is that I, as supposedly somebody with qualifications, will have to be extremely boundaried in, you know, if somebody DMs me on Instagram and asks me a question about their mental health, I have to say, no, I can't help you over Instagram because I don't have the right information. And, and this is how it is. This is the legalities of it. And, you know, from, from the perspective of my govern, my governing body, etc. I just can't do that. And it, it would be, you know, it, it's wrong to start with, but it's also I'm not allowed. Whereas if somebody sends that exact same DM to a personal trainer who's had X, Y or Z struggle and might think they know everything about it, they can tell them to do whatever they want to tell them to do. And there's not necessarily those same repercussions. And then you think, well, actually, are you also like, what, how is that? How is that okay? That then the person that might actually be able to answer the question isn't answering the question. And that person that shouldn't be answering the question is, but again, how do you stop that from happening? I don't know. Yeah, definitely. I think we saw it quite a lot when, during the first lockdown in particular, when all the gyms closed mm. and there was kind of, that's for me when I started seeing more and more, you know, um, a lot of gym owners, cause I live on Merseyside. So of course that was like the center of the, the, mm. you know, the gyms, you know, refusing to close yeah. and mental health became a big reason for that. And yeah. that was quite fascinating for me because, um, you know, yes, it's great that people have the gym to look after themselves, but if the gym closes and you start really, really struggling, well, that's not a gym problem. That's a mental health issue that you should probably seek some help with. 
And it shouldn't be up to personal trainers to check in with their clients to make sure that they're getting up in the morning and looking after themselves. That's not a personal trainer's job. You know, that needs someone with a bit more training. And that was, yeah, it was quite interesting for me how that all all came together. And um, something else you mentioned there as well is that's growing more and more popular. And I know this because a lot of them contact me to try and get on the podcast, but um, is like almost mental health blokes coaching. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some people who, are, you know, you can coach your way out of anxiety and depression and all that sort of stuff. And I think that's something that I see more and more on the rise, you know, and again, it just goes back to that whole thing, you know, so oh, you can flip anxiety on its head. It's just a state of mind. And you say, well, maybe if you are experiencing a very natural, you know, anxious emotion about a job interview, then it can be useful to have these tools to flip that on its head. But not if, you know, anxiety is ruining your life because it's having a a massive impact on your quality of life then like coaching is not necessarily going to uh going to turn that around on its own anyway you know absolutely and i think that it's it again is a tough situation because what will have happened to these people is that they will have struggled with anxious emotions and anxiety around things like business and stuff like that and they will think well i overcame this anxiety by doing x y or z therefore i can help other people overcome their anxiety by doing x y or z and you can absolutely 100% see why people think that. And it's it, like you say, for some people, it is perfectly appropriate in the sense that that's the, that's the stuff that they need to hear in the same way that for some people who are experiencing, you know, aches and pains, for example, need to be more physically active. So seeing a personal trainer will help them be more physically active, which will probably help some of those symptoms. But some people who've got aches and pains have got aches and pains because they've got an underlying medical problem, for example, um, and no amount of physical activity is going to fix that. So, you know, I, I think it's, again, it, it for the most part, I think it comes from a relatively noble place. Um, and I think that there are some really good people who do that and who recognise their limitations and who refer out when needed. And that's all, you know, that's all that really needs to happen is the idea that, yes, by all means, help people by all means give people strategies to deal with certain emotions that's absolutely fine but also know the limits and and recognize that if those strategies aren't helping it might be because they need more than strategies um or recognize the the symptoms and signs and that's the other thing that i think is becoming more popular is like that the idea of mental health first aid the idea of people being um you know like trauma-informed coaches or you know mental health informed coaches like understanding that there is there is more to it and 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 it's that it's that dunning kruger curve again yeah. isn't it and and people just not realizing what they don't know until they do a bit of learning about it yeah i think like this so one thing i've ex- like learned a lot about since i've been chatting to all these different people is the amount of different stuff that's out there that can help people in so many different ways and so much of it i didn't know even existed and i wish i did when i was poorly you know some mm. of it could have probably quite helped me and i just think like yeah people can learn a little bit about what's out there and then have a really good signposting system mm-hmm. that's kind of you, you, do you know what i mean like i having a podcast where i talk about these things i open myself to and i'm very very strict i always say like that i'm not i just have conversations but when i if i do get a dm that's you know a certain way then i have things in place that yeah. i can kind of where i can make sure that i can signpost people yeah 
to somewhere or something. And I think we could all have some version of of that to sort of rather than try and take it on ourselves. Exactly. And I think the other again, the other side of the argument is you don't want to make it elitist. I don't want to say like no one's allowed to talk about mental health unless they're a trained professional because nobody wants to like people don't want to hear from me about mental health they want to hear from people that have struggled with it they want to hear from relatable people they don't want to have a necessarily have a a gp telling them what they should or shouldn't be doing they want to hear people's stories because people relate to that and it makes them feel more open and it makes them feel more willing to share their struggles so the patient journey is so important and it is so important that we talk about these things and that we share them it's just there's a difference between sharing stories and sharing discussions and sharing advice and there has to be a line between those things and like you say there are so many you know there, there is so much value in what people have to say like I went to um I remember I've I've been to to talks and events and stuff where there have been mental health panels like panel discussions which have not contained a single mental health professional and I've been blown away by how much I have learned from those panel discussions because I thought you know what I've never thought about it so much from the ground before I've thought about it from treating mental illness from treating mental health and all of those sorts of things but you know again it's very easy for a GP to forget that outside of that 10 minute consultation a patient has an entire life and relationships and a job and all of these different things and different aspects which all feed into it and and it's not just about what they're doing it's a bit like a personal trainer it's not just what they're doing in that hour of training it's what they're doing for the rest of the week as well and it's not just about the medication that they take or about their counseling sessions it's about how they support their mental health in other ways so you know it's it's hugely valuable but I just think that there just has to be a bit of a um I guess delineation between between boundaries i guess yeah yeah definitely and you mentioned sort of the um the patient pathway there so with regards to from a gp perspective um how do you start to think what sort of things do you start to think about to make the decision of where you know where people need to go because like i said before people could come to you because they're just experiencing some low mood or it could be more serious and obviously if it's at different ends of i don't like talking about mental health in scales but um you know for the sake of this if it's at the more extreme ends then that's a little bit easier but sometimes it's a bit blurry in the the middle yeah and the majority of the times i would say it's a bit blurry and in the middle and and when that's the case um often you use you use time and often you use just exploration of thoughts and ideas and, and those sorts of things. Um, I think that, you know, you don't have to make all your decisions in one go. And I think time is, is often a useful diagnostic tool. And, and so really the beginning discussions tend to be about things like, you know, risk assessments, making sure that, that you know, safety is key, making sure that people are safe um, and making sure that, you know, you've taken like having the discussion and asking the questions about the types of symptoms that people are experiencing and applying the diagnostic criteria to kind of formulating what you think the diagnosis might be if, if there is or isn't one. And there will frequently be times in a, in a, and again, I can only really speak for myself as a GP and for, you know, for, for, for people that I might work with or for people that I might train and the approaches that I use. So, you know, other people might have a different experience if they go and see their GP, but generally speaking, it's a discussion and it's a discussion about 
what the patient thinks, what they want. They know their condition already a lot better than I do because I've only spoken to them about it for a few minutes. And so sometimes that initial consultation might just be information finding. Sometimes we might say, well, let's try this, 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 and this, maybe some self-help, maybe do a, a self-referral for, for some counselling so that we've got that in, in place. But here's some resources for some websites to look at, some self-help information to try, relaxation techniques, those sorts of things. Um, and then further discussion at another time to see how that's gone and decide about other things like, you know, um, I guess medication and stuff like that. I'm sort of just really mindful as I'm describing this that I don't know how useful it is for for people to listen to that kind of process because I guess it, it's different for like I say it's different for everybody and there will be some people who who might come in and you think well this is this is my chance to to help somebody who's really struggled to ask for help for a really really long time and then you might move things along a bit faster in that situation because you might think this could be you know, they, are they going to come back? Are they going to engage with things? Is this is this a time sensitive opportunity to help that will expire, or is this something that we can take a bit more slowly, um, both from a safety perspective and, and and from other things? And so it really depends a lot on on the level of things. Obviously, you might be getting other professionals involved as well, mental health teams, mental health support workers that a lot of practices have access to um counselors therapists that sort of stuff as well so yeah um, I, I that I know that's a really willy sort of answer but that's because it's such an individual thing it, you know I, I I can speak to multiple different patients about mental health problems and they will have multiple different plans at the end of the consultation and, and a really important aspect of that is also what what they want as well you know what what help do they think that they need what help do they want what help will they accept um because invariably in most situations particularly when it comes to mental health there isn't just the one answer there's lots of different options and lots of different ways of dealing with things and it's figuring out what the best of those options is for that person yeah, sure. And I'll take, physical health as well, to be fair. Yes, of course, all aspects of health, right? And uh, I'll tell you the reason I asked, Mike, is because there's a lot of, um, I suppose, misconceptions about going to the GP around um, mental health. And some of that we kind of mentioned be mentioned before. But the reason I was just interested to get your take on it, and it's something I talked about with um, Dr. Poonam when she was on as well, is that quite often with things, people will take advice off someone in the office about you know oh there's no point going to your gp you're just gonna get given meds and put on a waiting list for counseling and you know there's like people do talk like that and they'll take advice from doris in the office whereas that you wouldn't take like child raising advice from her or dietary advice from her you know we'll listen to that voice but maybe wouldn't um for some reason people put it off and i know myself like i th that going to the doctor for me was like a last resort i didn't do it for ages and i because i'd heard all these things that just for me personally, turned out not to be true. And I always say it's a very, very individual choice. I would never encourage anyone to do what I did. But for me, I had a lot of success. And if I'd have done it earlier, I would have saved myself and my wife a lot of <laughs> a lot of uh, a lot of heartache. So yeah, it's just interesting to get your your perspective. 
Um, one other thing I wanted to just ask about your job is there is there anything in place for GPs that helps you to look after yourself? So if like like the Samaritans, for instance, before they finish a shift, they have someone to call and check in with. And I was just thinking about you because obviously on Instagram we see stuff about other aspects of your life. So I think sometimes with doctors, we only see them as doctors and we never, it's like when you see your doctor in the supermarket and you're like, oh my God, there's Dr. So-and-so. But with you, because of Instagram, we see that you have a life and you're a person and you are Mike as well as Dr. Mike. Um, And then that made me think about how much, you know, like the challenges of a busy, stressful job, talking about this sort of stuff all day. And then like, you know, is there a process for yourself to check in and look after yourself? Um, that's a really good question. And I, I suppose the answer is that, that yes, there is. I think it's, I think, it, I, I think people do underestimate how challenging it is. Oh, sorry. Just lost you for a second there. Sorry. Um, my phone rang and the screen went crazy. I do apologise. Um, so when you're, when you spend a lot of your day I think managing your emotions, as in not really having them, I suppose, or having to put them aside in order to, to, to do something, I think it is quite impactful. And it does come out in other ways. I think it has to, because otherwise, you know, bad things will happen. But nobody who rings their GP particularly wants to hear about how the GP's day is. And rightly so. It's not that's not what this is about. You're the professional in this situation and people are calling you for advice. And you know, you sometimes see it sort of inappropriately. People people let what else is happening in their life kind of affect some of those those things. And what was really interesting for me during the pandemic was that people would ring up and they would go, enough about me. How are you doing? And it would almost like make me cry because I would be like, it, it was just so overwhelming that suddenly somebody wants to hear about, you know, and it was genuine. It wasn't just that they're not just going, oh, are you all right? Like it, it was genuinely people thinking that your, you know, that your problems were greater because they were seeing what was happening on the news and they were seeing, you know, health professionals struggling and all of that sort of stuff. And there was sudden, suddenly this, this real kind of tuning in to what was going on. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are support services and things like that. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of focus, particularly in training at the moment. So with, with our, you know, with our trainees, there's, there are um, a lot of wellbeing services that have been made available. Um, but they have to be engaged with it's not it's not something that's kind of part of your day you don't have a debrief session at the end of the day trainees do um generally have debrief sessions with their trainers at least once weekly um we have an annual appraisal where we talk about how we're getting on once a year um but there's not there's nothing sort of that's built into the day but i think that that's the thing about general practice that you don't always get in hospital medicine is that you have an end of the day like you don't it's not quite the same with regards to shift patterns and things like that so you have a bit more of a routine um whereas in hospital medicine often people are working shifts and it's it, you know they might be working with different teams on different days and all of that sort of stuff so but then at the same time gp can be a bit lonelier because you're working on your own it, it really depends on a lot of things i think that generally speaking um like i have a great team that i work with 
And I very frequently am knocking on people's doors and having a bit of a, you know, a bit of a whinge if I'm stressed at the end of the day. Like I'm a big, I'm a big talker, as a, as we've mentioned. So if I've got something on my mind, I'm chatting about it to whoever will listen. Um, not patience, I'm not doing that, but certainly to my colleagues and and you know and and friends and family and all of all of the usual people. So it's um i think yes it exists but it's more self-directed i suppose yeah sure and that's our support units and stuff yeah super that ties in really nicely mike with um something else i wanted to just to ask you as we sort of start to wind it down here but something i've heard you mention before and that's the 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 one percent stuff you know the small little small one percents that add up into bigger percentages as a way of maintaining good mental well-being what sort of stuff do you mean by the one percent so we, we touched on it a bit before, um, but I think that what gets a bad rap a lot, particularly in social media, and I've heard I've had a lot of doctors do this. So a lot of doctors will be really critical of this, the quote unquote woolly approach to, to, to things. So, you know, people who talk about, um, you know, going for a walk or getting out amongst nature or taking a bath or journaling or meditation or mindfulness or all of these things. Well, you know, the, the criticism that, that that people get for, for pushing those things is that, well, that's not going to cure someone's mental illness. That's not going to cure someone's depression. That's not going to stop somebody from ending their life. Um, no, it's not. But what we're trying to do, generally speaking, is to help people feel better. And there might be a lot of different things that might help people to feel 1% better. And if you do a lot of those things, then that adds up to 10%. And no, feeling 10% better is not necessarily going to treat your mental illness. You might need medication, you might need counselling, you might think need other things as well. But if you can climb 10% of the hill with those things, it's not, you know, it's not to be sniffed at. I think it's just, we we deride things that we see to be unimportant. And I think that one of the things that we really realized, or definitely I realized during the pandemic, is when is that we automatically build a lot of those things into our days. You know, when we meet someone for a coffee, we're not just consuming coffee. We're connecting with somebody and having a chat and having a whinge and having a bit of, you know, it's it's a bit of therapy. It's a bit of a debrief. It's journaling out loud. It's reflecting. It's processing your thoughts right so when those little things that that are just automatically built into our day walking to work as opposed to working from home for example um listening to songs on your commute listening to the radio listening to a podcast or whatever whereas now everyone's working from home or whatever when these things are suddenly taken away people start to go oh my mental health doesn't seem so good i don't feel quite as resilient i feel a bit more emotional what's going on I'm struggling with this and people don't even necessarily make the connection between the loss of all of these things that have happened and the fact that that they're feeling worse or they don't necessarily replace those things with other forms of the same thing. Like instead of going to the pub with our friends after work, we go home and watch Netflix. Instead of going to the gym, we might like sit at home and watch Netflix you know and those things aren't going to have the same impact on our mental health as those as as the little bits that we're doing that give those little one percenters um so i think you know my point is when i talk about that is that yeah it's not the be all and end all but it doesn't mean we should ignore it and it doesn't mean that we should 
belittle people who are promoting it because actually, like we spoke before, different aspects of the public audience need to hear different things. And there are a lot of people whose lives would be a lot better if they were taking care of themselves in ways that they might not realise would be helping them. Yeah, yeah, completely. And I think sometimes if you look at some of the statistics, particularly around, you know, men of a certain age group and the statistics around um, suicide and stuff like that, the one thing that a lot of people have got common as they journey through life is the things that as life naturally changes that you don't realize that you're leaving behind, that yeah. you stop doing the social stuff. You stop doing like for me, um, you know, I've, I turned my, all my hobbies into my job and then I had no creative outlet. And then when I got mm-hmm. a creative outlet back, that really helped me. And yeah. just like these things, naturally we leave them behind. Don't we, we see less of our friends because everyone's got kids and jobs and we're busy and stuff like that. But yeah, just thinking about it in that way, as bringing all these little things back. Um, yeah. I can see why that would be incredibly um, powerful. And one of the things that, that I found, and you, you, obviously you had Lucy Lord on your podcast baking you know baking is not making a cake baking is mindfulness and meditation it's having your you know you're too busy to use your phone your phone is away your hands are dirty so you can't scroll on instagram you're focusing on something and you're creating something and you have something at the end of it and that for me during lockdown and stuff and then then i would i would bake something and then take it to to friends like i you know drop it off at people's doorsteps and stuff and that was a weird way of communicating with people at a time that we weren't allowed to see each other um and i can't describe the impact that that had on my mental well-being at that time it was it was phenomenal and so it kind of left me you know it I, it frustrates me when people roll their eyes at things that actually do have a massive impact yeah yeah definitely and it's nice that when we have those little moments to actually like spend the time to feel the niceness of that yeah. moment because yeah. when something bad happens we dwell on it for like yeah. a day and let it ruin our lives but when something nice happens we tend to go like oh i did some great baking yeah. so anyway what's on netflix you know and yeah, we just exactly. move straight past it but exactly. to take a take a moment to soak that up um yeah. is really really nice and i suppose that ties in again with you know gratitude and all that sort of stuff that could also mention gratitude about. but i should have done yeah there you go oh mike that was brilliant thank you so much for your time mate i really really uh, enjoyed that that was great cheers mate. thank you for listening from the proper mental podcast Please like and subscribe. Plus five stars.